If you would open with me to Romans chapter 1. I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 6. We'll be focusing just on a few words in verse 1. Reading God's holy and infallible word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this uh, privileged opportunity in the public gathering of your people to look into your word and to learn more about you and by the working of your spirit to grow to be more like you. Please bless the uh, feebleness of preaching unto the benefit of your people and your own glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a joy to be back with you in the book of Romans as we're building, albeit slowly, uh, on the first two installments. Recall it was uh, step one. We looked at Paul, uh, the person before, during, and after his conversion, and we saw there how uh, we are very much like him, right? Natural man, our conversion, though changing in some particular details, uh, though ultimately as the new man in Christ, we're very similar to Paul as well. Second step, looking at what it means to be a bondservant or just a servant of Christ. Again, we see the similarities. We may not be apostles, we're not writers of inspired scriptures, but we are servants of, as we come to today, Jesus Christ. So our focus is, who is it that saved us? Similar to how Paul was saved, unto salvation by grace through faith. Who is the one that we were saved unto? Uh, seated with Christ in heavenlies, etc. Who is this Jesus? To say that it's important for us to get a correct answer to that question, who is Jesus, is obvious, right? Uh, the potential pitfalls, the bad paths off into the weeds and the bushes is uh, multifold. There are so many wrong ways uh, to answer this question. There is one right way to answer this question, and there's a way very clearly uh, laid out in the scriptures, even in the most basic ways that I'll be articulating here for you today. So if we go amiss here as to who Jesus is, we've got a lot of trouble. Uh, many people do, many religions do. Uh, every cult, every false religion incorrectly identifies who Christ is. Of course, there's other areas that go along with that. They misunderstand what scripture is, what inerrancy is, what preservation is. They misunderstand the Trinity and, and a thousand other things. Uh, so to go wrong on who Jesus is, is a fatal flaw. And it's either connected to, based on, or foundational to other uh, catastrophic mistakes. Certainly it would be beyond the scope of our time today to completely cover the doctrine of Christ. My aim is not going to be to give you an exhaustive apologetic. Uh, for further reading, I mentioned two books in your outlines. Highly recommend uh, Jesus Divine Messiah by Robert Raymond. Um, I've had this for probably 13 years. I don't know if it's still being published. This is the two volumes in one edition. And um, 
Also, I mentioned in the outline, I didn't bring with me to show you, but uh, this is definitely available uh, currently in print, the book by John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Two books which I'm confident will not only grow your mind and knowledge in understanding who Jesus is, but certainly stir up your heart uh, towards him. So highly encourage those for your further study. So, not being able to cover everything, but wanting to focus on what we can today and really to stick uh, closely to our text as much as a sort of topical sermon will be. I wanted to focus on a Pauline understanding, that is, according to Paul. Uh, what is Paul's understanding? What is his articulation of who Jesus Christ is? And uh, mostly, though not entirely, but mostly uh, even narrower than that, to look at what's in Romans, his articulation of who Jesus is. And obviously we're not gonna find a different Jesus Christ in Paul's works. We're not gonna find a Jesus Christ different from all the others in Romans. So if we find him here, it is consistent with what we find uh, throughout scripture. But to try and narrow the vast uh, data points uh, that we could accumulate, to narrow them down to Pauline literature, and to narrow them mostly uh, to Romans, though I'll be pulling in some other scriptures as you can see on your outlines. And I want to do that in two steps. Again, you can see it there, the name and then the person work. So first, I want to look really simply, what does his name mean? And then look more at the person. Because as you know, you look up a word in the dictionary and you're like, well, that's not how it's used today or the context is a little different. So here in our case, the uh, dictionary definition will be very informative as we'll see, but we'll build upon that in terms of who's the person that bore this name because other people have borne similar names. That didn't make them the divine Messiah, but this man, Christ Jesus, born for our salvation, is unique and fully represents everything that we can articulate from his name. So that's our map for today. And I want to uh, point us to that ultimate goal of seeing that Jesus Christ is the divine Messiah. No doubt about that. So essentially true and so clearly evident in God's word. So let's look at our text uh, with that question, who is Jesus? And already with that answer, the divine Messiah in mind. We'll begin with his name. The simplest part of the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is that dictionary definition, uh, the plain meaning of the words. And we see it there, uh, Jesus, Jesus is how we pronounce that in the Greek, and then Christos being from Christ. And looking at the Greek of the first word there, Jesus is the English pronunciation. It's not a translation, but a transliteration of the Greek word Jesus. Uh, again, translate, transliterated, not translated. So the sounds of the Greek word, Jesus, are put into the sounds of English in the closest approximation. Uh, it really is remarkably close, other than the fact that our J substitutes for the, the Y, or the Y portion at the beginning. Uh, but this is a translation, as it were, of the sounds, not the meaning. Uh, this doesn't tell us the meaning, it just tells us how to pronounce it, uh, how to say it. It gives us a help and an aid in that. But coming the next step, uh, we see that Jesus, which corroborates with the Hebrew Yeshua, means Savior. And we don't have to go back to Greek literature to try and figure that out. We have an inspired definition given to us by God, and it's in Matthew 1.1. I've quoted it for you there. For he will save his people from their sins. Right? 
That's what his name means. <laughs> and it doesn't say he will save his people from his sins, you know, cross-reference page 236 of the Greek dictionary, but that is the meaning of the text there. It's defining the terms. Uh, anybody who in their apologetics trying to dismiss the deity of Christ who says, oh, you know, that's a narrator's addition or different things like this, well, already they're calling into question the authority of God's word. So with our foundation of God's word being sufficient, we have this very simple statement. He will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. But what is it to be a savior? I mean, Jesus saved people from lots of things, right? He saved them from storms on the sea. Uh, he saved sick people from physical illness. He solved, or saved demonically tormented people from those forces of darkness. But foundational to his mission was more than not an either or, but a both and. But those uh, health healings and savings, those weather savings, pointed to the foundational mission that he was on to save his people from their sins. And recall the observation when he forgave the sins of the paralytic. It's in Mark 2 and other gospel accounts as well. But in Mark 2, uh, verse 7, his attackers, I believe it was scribes there, say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then they add to that, from whom does forgiveness come? I'm sorry, misread my notes here. That's two different ways to translate that same verse. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Other translations have, from whom does forgiveness come but God only? Uh, <laughs> reload the document here. So the unbelieving Jewish teachers there uh, combined that observation. So they knew as a fact that no one can forgive sins but God alone. They added to that the accusation, why does he speak blasphemies? Right? That was their attack against him. He is blaspheming because he is claiming to be able to do what God alone can do. So they knew correctly that only God can forgive sins. In that they were right. But they also thought, wrongly that Jesus was usurping God's authority. He was rightly, as we know by faith, expressing and displaying God's authority. So fundamentally and fatally there, they were wrong. So yes, only God can forgive sins. And yes, Jesus is the divine Messiah and that he could do that as well. So he is the savior, he's the divine Messiah, forgiving people's sins, saving them from those sins. And this is all further confirmed when we look at the Hebrew root. Again, that Hebrew corroboration of the Greek word Jesus, which is Yeshua. Standard English pronunciation of that is Joshua. But it means, again, tr uh, translated, the meaning is God is salvation. So you see that direct from uh, Hebrew to Greek, and as we understand it in English, God is salvation. Jesus means God saves. So while Jesus is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew Yeshua, uh, Yeshua is commonly pronounced English Joshua, and you'll notice there's other Joshuas, right? This is why I referred to other people have borne the name that Jesus bore. That doesn't mean they were saviors of the world. <laughs> and so that's why we must uh, load on top of this the particulars of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. So the name Joshua is the same name that Joshua in the Old Testament bore, right? Joshua, the son of Nun, and Jesus, the son of Mary, those names 
when spoken in Hebrew, are the same. Uh, Joshua saved his people typologically, whereas Jesus saved his people actually. And a fun fact, uh, two Yeshuas went to Jericho, right? One in the time of Rahab, the other in the time of Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. So that Hebrew word Yeshua is the same, but that doesn't mean they're the same person. doesn't mean we're wrong to pronounce the word Jesus in English. It just means from its Hebrew origins, it is the same name. But the second part of this, Jesus Christ, uh, comes as we look at how Christ is especially used in the New Testament. Uh, again, the word Christ, uh, transliteration, it's the uh, English writer's best attempt to bring those sounds into the English of Christos. Christos, the translation, or sorry, transliteration of uh, Christ into English, but it's derived from the Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah, right? So the meaning Messiah is what stands behind the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Greek Christos, which is transli transliterated into the English of Christ. And here I refer you to two verses in John. First, John 1:41. Here again is an inspired, even more clear than that Matthew example for Jesus, but an inspired definition of what Christ means, directly tying it to its Hebrew roots. We read there, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Could it be any more clear that Christ is Messiah? Also in John 4, uh, verse 24, we have both an inspired translation, so again, the meaning tied from Messiah to Christ, as well as pinning it on Jesus as the actual Messiah. Reading that for you, uh, this is the woman saying to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Right? So she's saying Messiah equals Christ. And then Jesus answers to her, could it be any more clear? I am he. So I am that Messiah. I am that Christ that you are speaking of. And uh, I'm certain that you could be out there on the street in the academia, in the workplace, talking to people who say, oh, Jesus isn't actually that. You'd think, right, coming to these simple verses, it would be obvious, which just points to the fact that it's not lack of knowledge that closes people's minds and hearts and eyes to the understanding of Christ and salvation, uh, but it is the Spirit opening their eyes to understand that which their minds can clearly see. So all that said, very helpful verses. Uh, one thing to note, though, uh, technically, Christ is not a name but a title, Right, a title referring to one who is anointed, uh, placed into his office. And traditionally, the Jewish messianic expectation referred to the office of judging or the office of ruling. And Paul does, on occasion, specifically refer to Christ in those capacities. But interesting, his emphasis, again, not exclusively, but by way of emphasis, more often than not, he places special emphasis on his priestly office, and I'll be following up on that later. And within his priestly office, uh, that's expressed in the suffering servant uh, ideas uh, that are, of course, uh, not new to the New Testament, founded in the Old Testament. So again, uh, Christ tied to Messiah, meaning anointed one, anointed meaning installed and placed into office. 
So taking all this together, uh, we have the Scripture's witness uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're not left to wonder, well, is this somebody's opinion? Was this one writer in one age at one time? No, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through his mouthpieces, his prophets. We see that Mary's child is the one who fulfilled Old Testament expectation of the Savior. And it's just by the name, really. I I think you could just lay out what I have into a fair-thinking person in whom God is working and opening their eyes. They would say, wow, yeah, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the divine Messiah. Uh, And I would, if you are one to, you know, have little note cards, let me keep something in my glove compartment of my car or in my wallet just as a quick cheat sheet of key verses to have on hand to prove the deity of Christ. Uh, Even just the first Two, one, the first one from each of these points, Matthew 121 and John 141 are sufficient, but add to it others as is useful to you. So these several verses are hugely useful in proving Jesus' divine messiahship. And of course, there's many others that could be added along the same line of reasoning, and there's other line of reasonings also uh, to show how certain uh, activities, to show how uh, certain uh, places and words Uh, were either in the mouth of Jehovah in the Old Testament and then spoken by him in the New Testament and other avenues for proving the deity of Christ. And this is just one, one very simple one, very straightforward one, and hopefully a helpful one for you. Summary being that God himself tells us what the words Jesus and Christ mean. It's as simple as that. With those definitions, we see that Jesus is the anointed Savior, which is to say, the divine Messiah. One fairly significant application of his divinity, his divine Messiahship, uh, ties to the images of Christ. And in my original organization of the sermon, I had another point to put here. And so as this turned out, I feel like we're all of a sudden jumping into a big thing. I apologize for the flow here. But um, so it is a big point, the fact that Jesus's divinity ties to this issue of images of Christ. And a couple interesting points of providence came up in my life the last couple months that tied together here. It was about two or three months ago in a little um, chat time with uh, co-workers, which are all Christians at Samaritan Ministries. Somehow this issue came up and I was, um, to the extent that a remote worker who's never really seen these people in person <laughs> and doesn't know them but has a good working relationship can do, I was trying to bring up a reformed view of this issue. And that was a couple weeks ago. Uh, some men, we were sitting at lunch and this topic came up. And then it was that same weekend as that lunch that I was finally unpacking a bunch of book boxes from our most significant move five years ago. Finally opened those book boxes and came upon... Uh, this brief pamphlet, and uh, so the Lord brought to my mind, it's called Seeing Jesus, the Case Against Pictures of Our Lord Jesus Christ by Peter Barnes. And uh, so it's interesting how God brings these across your path multiple times in a fairly short period of time. I haven't say I've really thought a lot about this over the last couple of years, but here we are and coming to Romans 1.1. So this uh, little pamphlet uh, is now out of print. It's from the Banner Truth Trust. I had it typeset, and we're going to print up some booklets. Because the um, info table is going to be taken down so quickly at the end of worship today, we'll just put those out next week. But I think we'll be a helpful uh, 
tool for you, just a reminder of some basic uh, principles that lead to the conclusion that based on who Jesus is, it's just, it's not appropriate. Uh, It is a violation of scripture to have images, whether those be still images or uh, moving images like movies, to have images of Christ. And the brief reasoning, and this isn't a long document, so even his full explanation is not terribly intricate, but just to be brief with you here. The first point, the basic principle, is that all pictures of Christ are inherently inaccurate because we don't know what he looked like, right? We don't know if he had long hair or short, black hair, brown hair, a mustache or not. We can look at some clues, think according to our understanding of cultural traditions at the time, he probably looked like this. But even if somebody's trying to be a student like that, why is it we have, you know, the hippie Christ and the African Christ and all these different, right? Um, And so... Because we don't know what he looked like, any image of him is going to be inaccurate. It just can't be uh, true. Further, pictures of Christ are not only personally inaccurate in terms of those physical traits, but they're also substantially inaccurate, which is to say they cannot convey who he was fully. They cannot convey the union of divine and human natures. And if they did, it would be doubly bad. So if the picture is inaccurate, if the image is inaccurate, uh, the only appropriate response to a meeting, a seeing, which is why he speaks of seeing Jesus, is to worship Jesus, right? But if we're presented with this image as inaccurate, then we're inaccurate in our worship of what we're supposed to do. Do you see that juxtaposition? And so there's no way we can respond properly to this image other than, frankly, closing our eyes. Right? To not see a false image of Jesus is the only correct response to it. So, such images should not be made. But it is very important that we see Jesus. And I really like the clever title he chose here, Seeing Jesus. Uh, it's based on a quote, where is it, from John 1, uh, sorry, 12. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus. It should be the desire of our hearts day by day to see Jesus. It should be the longing of our souls to have our neighbors see Jesus. That doesn't mean go watch the Jesus film or the Passion of the Christ. To see Jesus is to see him with the eyes of faith. So let us not give a poor substitute uh, to ourselves or our children as a stumbling block, uh, nor to those out there who might be led astray, but to usher them into truly seeing him uh, through Scripture, uh, through the eyes of faith. So I hope that's helpful, and we'll have these for you in print next week. Uh, One last note, though, before we move on. Uh, In Paul's letter to the Romans, we see him referred to as not just Jesus Christ, as it's here in verse 1, other times Christ Jesus, so you notice the words are inverted, uh, or Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting, it's never Jesus Christ Lord, though there is Jesus Christ our Lord. And another um, adjustment is Christ just by itself, and I, I don't know. I think Paul is unique among the New Testament writers in using Christ, and it becomes his sort of signature term uh, for the Lord. So here's another application to make for you. I really encourage you to use your liberty to employ the various names of our Savior. Uh, Messianic Jews focus on Yeshua. They think that's the one authentic way to do it. Jehovah's Witnesses, much more catastrophically, only use the name uh, Jehovah. Mormons use Jesus Christ as if it's his first and last name. And you've always got to speak with the first and last name together. We are not bound 
by those either misunderstandings or mere human traditions. We can enjoy, and I'd really encourage you to try and make a thoughtful practice of it. Not that whatever you use regularly is wrong, but there's other things uh, to add to it. Using Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, right? Um, if you're one who needs to have a schedule, say on Mondays, I'm going to do Christ Jesus, and on Tuesdays, Jesus Christ, whatever. Um, play with it mentally to break those rhythms, perhaps, uh, but to enjoy the liberty we have in knowing who Jesus is and calling him by name. All right? So that being the first uh, port, uh, part of our time here, to see what is the name. And I hope you can see it's very instructive to know the basics of what the words, the name Jesus Christ is. And now I want to delve into one key aspect, as I uh, hinted at earlier, of Paul's view of Jesus Christ. And again, I want to be clear, this is by way of emphasis. I'm not saying this is the only way that Paul understands in his own mind or wrote down by his own pen for us to read. It's not the only way that Paul speaks of Jesus. Definitely not. Uh, in the future, as we work through uh, all 16 chapters of Romans, we'll see uh, there's more nuance there. But for today, I want to explore what I see and what was impressed upon me in these last weeks of preparation, a standout aspect that builds on that priestly office that I mentioned earlier in terms of Jesus' anointing, his Christness, his anointing to office. His anointing was for sacrificial service as a mediator. And looking at all the mentions of Jesus, and by that I refer to Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, etc., all those mentions of our Lord in Romans, the most frequent point, but again, not the only point, <laughs> don't Come to me later and say, but what about this? So I would agree with all those, but what abouts? But by way of emphasis, as a key point, and thus the thing that stands out to me is the word through. So often we have it worded by Paul, through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus our Lord, which is to say that Jesus is the means or the instrument by which these great graces are affected in our lives in our world, in the church, in our families. So let's take a look at a few of these verses in Romans. And one thing I'll mention now, I was going to mention at the end, but these headings here, uh, A and B, and then the, the, the dashes underneath that, that's all taken from a Greek uh, dictionary that I have. So this is not my wording. It ended up sounding a little cumbersome uh, in terms of sort of technical language here. And so to explain why it's Sounds technical, because it's, it's technical from a Greek dictionary. But what it's defining is the usage of uh, through when it's related to a personal noun, which in this case is Jesus Christ. So let's read a few of these. Uh, Romans 5, verses 16 to 19. If you turn with me, or feel free to listen. Five, sixteen to 19. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace are the, of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ." 
Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as one man's disobedience, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So again, that point that Christians reign in life through Jesus Christ. That is, he is responsible for and he carried out the acts by which we reign through him. So that's the significance of being through Jesus Christ. Close to that, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, verse 1, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, this is a simpler one. Christians have peace with God through him, which is to say by the merit he earned from his perfect life, from his satisfaction of God's wrath and all that he did on our behalf. So through him, by his merit, we gain those graces. And then in between those two passages at verse 11, so you're starting to see how prevalent this is. I mean, you read Romans in the next week and you see, wow, I never noticed how many through Jesus Christ there were. At verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, joy, joy. It's a joy of thanksgiving, evidently. Joy through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice gives us the opportunity to have true joy. And a slightly different second category of what through means uh, there in this next point. So turn back with me to Romans 2. Verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by... That's the same Greek word, dia, here translated by, other places, through. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So it's through, it's by Jesus Christ that this judging, which this is the judging of uh, the secrets of all men, occurs by Jesus. And then back to Romans 5 again. Verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Through him. Jesus is the first cause. He is the one uh, instrumentally active, is the way the sort of technical wording is here, in us being saved from wrath. God's wrath through Jesus Christ. So I hope that bit of grammar, those categories wasn't too tedious. And again, those headings are provided from the Greek dictionary. But the focal point here is that Jesus is the one through whom, right? It's not just us. Um, It's not us actually being made somebody worthy of or having in and of ourselves actual holiness. But it's Jesus, what he did for us, through him, what he gave us and enables, how he sanctifies what we do, all of that, it is through Jesus Christ. And so see here the connection with his name. Jesus is the Savior. 
which is what his name means. Jesus is the anointed one, his priestly office, what the other part of his name means. All of that is not empty. Uh, it clearly reflects who he is and what he does for his people. His whole life, his being, his ministry is consistent with his name. It comes to the final application here. As I worded it, not trying to be too clever, but it worked out good and hopefully it'll be memorable. Jesus is not a name plate. He is our namesake, right? Name plate is just the label you stick on something. He is not that. He is our namesake. I remember growing up as a child, and uh, like so many boys are, I was interested in cars, and it struck me as odd how General Motors would make basically the same vehicle, and depending on maybe some slightly different bumper shapes and the label on the back, it would be called you know, a Ford Taurus or a Mercury Sable. I'm sorry, that's not General Motors, that's Ford. Anyway, you get the point. And I'm like, why have two different names? This is the same car. Maybe different trim levels or something. Well, what did it matter the name, right? Maybe there's loyal Mercury people versus Ford people, and it's all about, uh, all about brand loyalty. But it's not just a sticker on the cover of our Bibles. It's not just something on the website or on the banner out by the road, right? It's not just a nameplate. He is our namesake. We are called Christians because Jesus Christ <laughs> is the one who saved us. It may seem obvious, but like I mentioned last week with the prayer, if we're Christians, we will pray like Christians because we are Christians, and there's a way that Christians pray that's different than the way non-Christians pray. And so we as people being called by his name, wearing his label, wearing and being his name's sake should make a difference because he is the one through whom we are saved, by whom we are justified and rescued from wrath, through whom righteousness is revealed, and all of this throughout Romans and the other books of the Bible, through whom we thank God for his great grace, through whom we have the joy we just referred to. We are Christians. We have his name. Day by day, we display that even to the world. So friends, I hope this has been helpful to you. And as you read Paul's greeting, it's very simple words, easy to skip over and run right on to what we might think is the meaty part of this beautiful epistle. But hear it again, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now with a bit more thoughtfulness and maybe as I note in a moment, some conviction and some reflection, you know, am I living according to that name? He's done so much for me. How can I be more faithful by his grace. So I do pray this has given some glimpse into uh, the rich theological depths of the person and the work of our Lord and what uh, the New Testament writers pulled from in terms of the Old Testament foundations of their thinking, of their theology, of their understanding of who Jesus was. And so friends, as a final statement and your charge, let us grow in conviction, contrition, as well as comfort and celebration as we, by faith, again, by faith, we see Jesus, the divine Messiah. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, uh, but for it, and but for you removing the veil, as it were, for us to see you clearly, we would not understand you. But by having given us your word, and by giving us eyes of faith to see it and understand it and understand you, Lord, we thank you so much for the great salvation you have applied to us. May we grow in grace 
now in the midst of this next song even, today in the midst of our meal and conversation and the days ahead in the midst of uh, your Holy Spirit and our friends uh, provoking, poking at us uh, unto love and good works, Lord, that we would be your people bearing your name in this fallen world and doing so for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.